Uh, we've been in an eight-week series now called Church Defined, talking about the local church and who the church is. And I wanted to use Easter to launch us into a two-month teaching series just to help us reimagine who the church was called by God to be 2,000 years ago and who the church still is today. For those uh, a part of the Sycamore View family, just real quick, just to give, especially those of you online, kind of a feel of who we are on Sundays. We have, on average, around 140 people who are joining us for our early service. It's about double that who are joining us for our later service. And for those in person, I think it's good for you to know we still have a few hundred people who are joining us online every Sunday morning. So we're trying our best to steward both an in-person crowd and an online crowd. And this is going to be who we are moving forward. Many people are calling this a hybrid church. We just want to be faithful with whoever it is God is bringing to us in our worship services on Sunday. That we point people to Jesus in all that we do. Uh, This morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. I'm not so much going to read these stories to you, but tell these stories. And this is how I wanted to end this series. Uh, We're not going to study the entire book of Acts. I just wanted to take the first 10 chapters over eight weeks to help encourage you and inspire us and remind us of who the church is. And today, I think it's so pivotal that for the rest of the book of Acts and for the rest of the New Testament, Acts 9 and Acts 10 becomes this moment when the church is called by God to reimagine the kingdom of God, that this goes beyond Judaism, this is for the entire world. And if Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10 don't happen, we don't know how the rest of the book of Acts plays out. These two chapters are about salvation, about transformation, they are about racism, they're about privilege. This is about community, this is about all people. So in Acts chapter 9 it starts like this. You have a guy named Saul who his name is going to change to Paul, but Saul who is breathing threats and murder against Christians because of his devotion to God. It's not that Saul is a terrorist or that Saul is some atheist. Saul believes in God and he's trying to live out his faith. He believes in the letter of the law. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy knows scripture. This guy has attended church, synagogue his entire life. He's trying to live out his faith. And he thinks that the way, that's who the Christians were called in Acts chapter 9, the way because they're part of a movement, he's afraid of them. So he goes to a high priest and asks for warrants, for letters to go to Damascus to arrest people. He has a hit list. It's made up of not just men, it's made up of men and women. You only go and arrest people who you see to be a threat. Which wouldn't you hate to be a Christian in Damascus? in which you didn't make the list because they did not see you as somebody who was even worthy of being a threat. Like you just weren't living out your faith. Like we can skip over that person, but here are the people we're gonna go after. So he has this whole list that the high priest gives him to go arrest men and women. There are women who were seen as threats in the early church because of the way they're living out their faith and speaking about God. So here he is going to arrest all these people and on the road to Damascus, there's this bright light from God that shines upon him because now Jesus is gonna get involved both to protect his church and Jesus is also gonna get involved to transform a life because Jesus likes to turn agitators into passionate followers of Jesus. He likes to turn people whose hearts are in the wrong direction to to help guide them in the right direction. And Jesus, his first question to Saul is, Saul, and in every story I'm gonna tell you this morning, there is a name involved. When God speaks to you, when God thinks of you, he's not just thinking of a human being who takes up space. You are somebody who has a name. 
So the voice comes to Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because any persecution or any, any hurt that's being brought to the church, Jesus takes it very personal. Why are you persecuting me? And all these other people around Saul, they hear the voice, but they don't see anything. And then Saul is made to be blind for three days. God goes straight for Saul's eyes. Because in a way, God had to change the way Saul saw the world. Pardon the pun, all right? He had to change the way he saw the world. Now, in Damascus is a person named Ananias. He's called a disciple. This is the first time in the book of Acts that you have a person who is defined and described as disciple. Disciple shows up in the book of Acts for the first time in Acts chapter 6, but this is the first time that a description is given to an individual like this is a disciple. So Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus, Ananias, who is on the hit list that Saul's coming to Damascus to arrest him and to take him back to Jerusalem. A voice comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, calls him by name. And then tells him that what he needs to do is he needs to go to straight street to a guy named Judas's house. Like, don't you love when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and tells you exactly what it is you need to do? Like, there are times where throughout the Bible and even in your life where you wish you had direction from God. And all you get is like, hey, just, just start moving. Just go. And there are times we're looking at God with like our phones out, like, can you just put in Google Maps exactly where it is you want me to go? And then hit go so I can follow it. And there are times where God just kind of points us in the direction and asks us to start moving. And then there are times like in Acts chapter 9 with Ananias when God is going to put the address in the phone and the Holy Spirit's going to tell Ananias, you're going to go three blocks and take a right, go two blocks, and then you go into Judas's house. There's a guy named Saul, and I need you to deliver a message. And in the prayer time, Ananias, in his vision, He's responding to God like a FYI, kind of like a, uh, God, I don't know if, if you're aware of this, but the guy you're asking me to go talk to is a guy who is bringing threats. He's coming to arrest a bunch of us. And God tells him, I need you to go and deliver a message because this is a guy I'm going to raise up to take the good news of Jesus to the entire world. So Ananias goes, walks in the house, and there's Saul, blind for three days, And you don't know, like, was there any introduction that they have any talk to get to know each other a little bit? The way the Bible tells you is that Ananias walked in that house, placed his hands on Saul, and he told him two things. One, the Lord Jesus, who met you on that road, sent me so that you could regain your sight. And the second thing was so that you could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things. Regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because throughout Acts... Conversion and mission of God involves a filling of the Holy Spirit, not just knowledge, not just trying to articulate a different way, not just trying to persuade people in the way they need to go, but there's an experience, there's some kind of filling of the Holy Spirit that defines who people are in their salvation and in the road to tra- on, the, on the road of transformation. Ananias lays his hands on him to regain your sight that you may receive the Holy Spirit. And then you get in Acts chapter 9, and this is going to be up on the screen. In verse 18 and 19, it says this, Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
There is something like scales that fell from his eyes. When I moved to Memphis, this, this was a passage right here, a verse that just shook me to the core as I was convicted by God of all the scales that still need to fall from my eyes, the scales that need to fall from the eyes of the church so that we can see the world the way God wants us to see the world because Saul was unable to see the world the way God wanted him to see the world. The way he saw the world was either you're in or you're out. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. That was it. It's either you're white or you're black. And here was God coming to to go straight for Saul's eyes. And even to this day, for God to invade a heart, God must redirect and train our eyes. Now, why does this story even need someone like Ananias? Because allow me to just ask the question, like if the same God who could come to Saul in a miraculous way to shine a light, to reveal that there's something that needs to be done, why can that same God not speak the message that helps Saul understand who Jesus is and what he needs to do with his life. Why does his conversion have to be drawn out over a three to four day period of time? Why Ananias? And could I convince you today, could I just try to convince you just for a moment, that just as much as we're in need of Damascus Road experiences to come upon people all over the world today, we're just as much in need, if not in more need, of Ananias's, male and female Ananias's who will be sensitive to the call of God and will be obedient to where it is God is calling us to go. Because I don't don't think you really need Ananias other than God from the very beginning of Scripture loves to use human beings to accomplish his purposes. So the way God does this, it's not that God's gonna send Saul to Ananias' house. He's gonna send Saul somewhere and he's gonna send Ananias somewhere for them to make some kind of kingdom connection. And to do this, God goes straight for Saul's eyes. Now, I remember a few years ago, uh, I, had, I had taken a lot of pride most of my life in having really good vision. Up until about four years ago, I was printing off my sermon notes in eight-point font. I've always written, I, I write real small. And it was about four years ago, I found myself when I would be reading a book, kind of shaking my head every once in a while because my vision was getting blurry. So for the first time since probably middle school or elementary school, I went to an eye doctor three years ago this summer. And I went through all the tests they do where you cover up one eye and you read from a chart. And then they do the little poofy air thing, which I thought surely they have come up with some new technology where you don't have to do the poofy air thing in the eye anymore. And come to find out my eyes weren't that bad, but I did need reading glasses. So I have glasses now that I wear a lot of times when I read books or I stare at screens. And whenever you are given prescription glasses, you don't get to decide. You don't, hang on one second, please. You don't get to decide what kind of frame you get. You are given the lens. The, The lens is prescribed for you. You get to choose the frame. For me, I, I, at first I wanted like some kind of Memphis Grizzly, like 901 frame, but Casey wasn't going for that. Right? So when it comes to you having prescription glasses, the lens is not something you choose. You did get to choose the frame. Now you can show the slide. The slide. I mean, I could have gone with something like this if you go to the image where the frame is there. And I could have gone to something like this where the lens could have been prescribed for me and then you have any kind of frame that you want in life. God wants to give you the lens. The frame isn't what is so much important to the kingdom of God, but the lens that we use to view the world is so important to the kingdom of God. Now, let me me help you just play this out in the life of Saul. If you go to the next image. For Saul, the way he saw the world, 
there was Jew and there was God. And that was the lens he used to look at the world. Deeply committed to God. And everything was about protecting the Jewish faith. Saul was a defender of the faith. That's why he saw Christians as a threat, because Christians were doing something that hadn't been taught by him. It wasn't taught in synagogue. His parents didn't teach him this. Like He was so committed to God and to Judaism that that is why he was going to arrest all of these Christians. Now, for Peter, Jesus had transformed his lens. So if you go to the next image, for Peter, it was something like this. You have God and you have Jesus. Where Jesus was the Lord and the King, but it was still Judaism. For Peter, he, he saw Jesus live out this message. It went beyond Judaism, had received the Great Commission, but still trying to live that out was something really hard for Peter. So God's going to have to come and transform his eyes too. And then I started playing this out in my own life and even for us of the challenges we have every day of our lives to put on lenses that allow us or force us to view the world in a way that God doesn't want us to. If you go to the next image, sometimes it's dollar signs that are the lens that we view the world from. And it doesn't matter what economic status you are in. For those who find themselves in poverty, a lot of times it's, it's looking for money to pay bills or to bring dignity to a family. For those who are wealthy, what, when does it ever become enough? I have friends who will not retire for another 30 years, but they think about it every single day of their life. And if you go to the next slide, for a lot of us, it's social media. This is how we view the world. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Twitter, it's Snapchat. It's, it's uh, some kind of social media lens that we view the world. And if you've seen like a Netflix special, like uh, The Social Dilemma, you understand how these are, they are creating biases in your life. Now, I don't think social media is anti-God. I think Paul would have used social media. It can be used to leverage and to make great connections and to leverage life and communication for the good of the world and create connection with people literally all over the world. But it can become so distracting right, that it can take us away from what's most important. It can become the primary lens. And if you go to the next image, for many people, it's Fox or CNN. Now, I know very few people who use that as both of their lenses it's either one or the other, right? It's either two Foxes or two CNNs or two MSNs, but this is how you view the world. Now, I have people ask me sometimes, Josh, what do you think is the greatest challenge of Christianity moving forward in the world? And we could come up with a lot of different answers. We could talk about greed, about apathy, complacency, people who take salvation seriously but not transformation seriously. Today, I think one of the greatest challenges facing the church is that there are more Christians who are being discipled by cable news than they are by Jesus. Who spend hours a day soaking in cable news and five minutes a day in their daily devotional and think that it's creating in them a kingdom heart. That God never wanted us to use our cable news or our political affiliation to become the primary lens that we see the whole world through. And for many people, this has become your primary lens. You view it through your cable news outlet. And cable news and political affiliation aren't always a bad thing, but when it informs faith more than allowing faith to form it, it becomes idolatry. And we could go on and on talking about the primary lens that is keeping us from understanding the heart of God. And God is trying to retrain the eyes in salvation. He does it with Saul. Here in just a minute, he's going to do it with Peter. And I think, I, I think this is true, that it is more dangerous to think that you have perfect vision, but you don't. 
than it is to have poor or average vision and want to do something about it. And this is true with your physical eyes and it's true with the eyes of our heart, our spiritual eyes. It's more dangerous to think you have perfect vision, that the way you see the world and the lens you use, that it, it doesn't need a change. It's more dangerous to be in that state than it is, to know that my eyes aren't what God wants them to be and you want to change it. What matters isn't the frame, but the lens that we use to see the world. So Acts chapter 10, this guy named Cornelius, he's a Gentile, he's a Roman, he's a centurion. This is a guy with power, with influence. And he's also a man who is a, he believes in God. He has a prayer life, he gives generously. He's devout in his faith. This is a guy with a lot of power, who has an amazing prayer life, who's very generous with what he has. And there's a vision that comes to him like all four of the visions I'm talking to you about today in Acts 9 and 10, it begins with the name, Cornelius. And God, in the, in the vision, there's affirmation of Cornelius. Hey, thank you for your prayer life and thank you for your generous heart. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to send for a guy named Peter because he has a message for you. Here's a guy at the top of the, like when it comes to power, Cornelius is at the top. He has, all, everybody else works for him. And now he is told, that there's something in your life in which you need somebody to come and help you. So Cornelius sends two of his servants and one soldier to go and get Peter. Now Peter, the next day, is praying at noon. He was still praying the hours of the day. He's up on a rooftop by himself, and he's hungry and he's tired, which is a bad combination for all of us, right? Especially Sunday afternoons. You're hungry, you're tired, you can go into a trance too. So Peter's up on a roof, he's hungry, he's tired, there's a trance, and in the vision, there's a voice that says, Peter, right, calls him by name, Peter, get up and kill something and eat it. Because in the vision, there's a sheet that comes down, and in that sheet are all kind of unclean animals that Peter had been told his whole life, you cannot eat them. Now, this is where I like to point out to all of my vegan and vegetarian friends that in Acts chapter 10, there's no kale hanging over that sheet. Right. There's no salad, there's no baby carrots. We're talking rendezvous ribs. We're talking bacon-wrapped shrimp, right? We're talking fried catfish and hush puppies. Right. You can go to Red Lobster and get the biscuits, you just can't eat most of everything else on the menu, right? It's all this, and Peter says, I can't do it, like no way. And this happens three times, which happens multiple times in Peter's life, right? Where he denies God three times, and... And here he is right, right, arguing with God three different times in the vision. Like, I can't do that. Now, in this vision, I think there is something about food that God's trying to tell Peter that as the mission of God goes throughout the world, there are going to be moments when you're going to have table fellowship, when there's going to be food placed on a table. And it may be food you don't prefer to eat, but for the sake of table fellowship and relationships with people as the mission of God goes throughout the world, eat what is before you. I think it has a little bit to do with food, but a lot to do with people. That there were people in Peter's life who he had been trained to think his entire life that they were unclean. And this wasn't a sheet or a vision or a lesson that God was teaching Peter that God has now cleansed all people in a way that where now everyone was already saved, but that every single person in the world is a candidate for salvation. Every person is equally invited by God to a table. So part of the radicalness of Acts chapter 10 
is for you to envision if there was a sheet that came down from heaven for you, who were the people you would least likely want to see in there? And those are the people that God wants to retrain our eyes to see as people who are invited by God to the table, whether it's someone from another race, whether it's the LGBTQ community, whether it's Muslims, whoever it may be, that God is inviting all people and that God is asking the church to go to all people. Now Peter wakes up, and as he wakes up from the vision, there's a knock on the door, and it's two servants and a soldier. Imagine if you're Peter, and there are two Roman servants and a Roman soldier who are there. What are you thinking? But he's told by God that these are people, that he ends up, in verse 23, if you'll read it, it's up on the screen. It says, and sometimes we skip over little verses like this. It says, Peter invited the men into the house to be guests. So here's a Jew who's now gonna invite Gentiles into his home to provide hospitality. And if you invite people into a home, at some point there's gonna be food that is eaten. This right here is gonna get Peter in a lot of trouble in Acts chapter 11 and in, in Acts chapter 15, that Peter is breaking social codes that he had been taught to honor his entire life. And then Peter ends up going with him. He goes to the home of Cornelius. He walks into the home. Cornelius has invited a bunch of his family and other people. The house is full of people. And if you start reading Acts chapter 10, there's this moment where Peter starts talking to them. And it's like he is confused and he has an anxious heart. Because you just read the Bible, how the story's told. It's like Peter's, it's like he's in this moment where he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm here, but it's really awkward to be here. Because I was told not to ever be in a place like this, but here I am and like all these walls are being broken down in my life overnight and now I'm here and, and, and I know maybe I shouldn't be here and people would be upset if I'm, if I'm here, but maybe, maybe I need to talk to you. I mean, that's, it seems to be like that's how it goes. And then he starts preaching, starts telling the story of God, starts talking about Jesus. And I think it's a pretty good sermon but apparently the Holy Spirit in verse 44 thought that the sermon was good, but now let's get to some action, right? And you gotta hate when the Holy Spirit steps in or you gotta love when the Holy Spirit steps in and interrupts something to create a moment for God. And in verse 44, what happens, while Peter was still speaking and preaching these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentiles. There is salvation and then there's hospitality. I mean, it's one thing for Peter to offer hospitality in verse 23 where people are staying in the home where he was and now Peter stays for several days in the home of a Gentile. Now try explaining that to your Jewish friends in Acts chapter 11 and Acts 15. It's God's doing a new thing. So here's my question. In Acts chapter nine, who is converted? Saul or Ananias? And I think the answer is both. Right, that God is waking up Saul to understand who Jesus is and God is waking up Ananias to understand what the mission of God is. In Acts chapter 10, your subtitles say it's the conversion of Cornelius, which 
It is. Acts chapter 10 is just as much a conversion of Peter, not to salvation, but to understand the mission of God. There are four visions that come to four different men in Acts chapter 9 and 10. Two to understand salvation in Jesus. Two to understand that the mission of God is inviting you into deeper places than where you are right now. All of these are needed for the church today. We are in need of Damascus Road experiences throughout Shelby County and the world today. And we are in need of people who will be faithful to go and to move and to answer the invitation for the church to go about doing the work of God and speaking words for God. So a few years ago, a woman called me up and she said, can I just come? I need to process some of my faith with you. She came to my office. She sat down. She started sharing with me the story of her life the past two months that she had lived. She was a young woman. She didn't grow up in the church. She didn't grow up reading the Bible. She didn't grow up knowing the story of God. Two months before that, she had been living with her boyfriend, and even though she wasn't living in connection with God, she knew there was something about it that wasn't right. On February 14th of that year, her boyfriend broke up with her on Valentine's Day. And she said it just sent her into the spiral. She was very emotional. She had friends who took her out. They went from one bar to another bar to another bar. She had way too much to drink. She was very emotional. And then she got behind the wheel and she started to drive. She says she does not remember any of this, but she got out on I-40 going in the opposite direction for four miles. This was early on a, a Sunday morning. Somehow she avoided traffic, but she ended up hitting a, 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 a concrete pillar underneath one of the bridges, told her her car. She spent weeks in the hospital having multiple surgeries. It's amazing that she was alive. And it was there in the hospital, almost every night she started having dreams in which Jesus met with her. She didn't know who Jesus was. She started having these dreams of which Jesus was speaking her name and talking to her about the love of God. So she reached over in her hospital bed and thanks to the Gideons, a lot of hospital rooms have Bibles. She had never opened a Bible her entire life. She opened it up. It was only a New Testament Bible, so she didn't start in Genesis. She started in Matthew and she just started reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. She started reading about Jesus. She gets out of the hospital, comes in my office to know if everything she's reading about this Jesus, is this really true? It started with visions and dreams of encounters with God that drew her deeper and deeper into truth. And then a few days later, I was able to baptize her in the name of Jesus. Knowing that a lot of the brokenness from her past wasn't gonna just go away. It was gonna be transformed, knowing that the brokenness in her body would be with her for the rest of her life, but that there was Jesus who had entered into her, the spirit who was gonna guide her life. I think some of the same Damascus Road experiences and dreams and visions of God can happen today. In the last two weeks of my life, I've had a chance to sit with multiple people in the life of this church and have conversations with people even outside of this church who are asking questions about what is next for me? How can I go deeper with God? What is the invitation of God? I sat with Daryl Montgomery at lunch the other day, 81 years old, asking what I could pray for. And Daryl's response was, I want to know what God's purpose is for me the rest of my life. Most of us today aren't 81, but I hope all of us, when we get to the age of 81, we're praying the same exact thing. God, reveal to me what you want for me the rest of my life.
for the invitation of God today is an invitation into baptism and into salvation. And it's also an invitation into mission, into reconciliation, into obedience. So may God make our hearts sensitive and obedient to answer the call of God today. So I want to invite you, if you will, take the the bread and the cup and just hold it in your hand just for a moment. If you're online and you're joining us today, if you have the bread and the cup close to you, if you'll go ahead and get it. And if you don't, will you just sit with us here over these next few moments? And as we take the bread and the cup, I want you to think about everything Jesus has done for us. We take the bread and the cup in remembrance of what Jesus has accomplished and how it is still transforming us to this day. And I want you just to visualize the invitation of God in this moment, the invitation to a table. No matter where you are, no matter what you have done, that you are invited deeper into the heart of God. And may this transform us and call us to lives of obedience and faithfulness this week. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. For God, we ask you today, maybe it's through the cup, maybe it's through the bread, maybe it's through a vision or a dream, maybe it's through truth in a Bible class or in a conversation we have with friends. God, will you come right now in this moment, may scales fall from our eyes, that we may see ourselves the way you see us, and that we may see others the way you want us to see them. In the name of Jesus, we pray.